first of all, personally for me, in these, in these nation leagues games, they aren't even free to air. So most people in the country can't actually even enjoy them. So why are they being played in that? Why are we, why are we putting players at risk? Why are we putting uh, backroom staff at risk? Because there is a risk of this virus. But more importantly than that, how many people want to tune in and watch Ireland play Wales at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon in an empty stadium in a pointless game? I think it would lift the spirits of the nation. I don't give a fuck about the nation of Morocco. People's lives are at risk. Oli Gunnar, where would you like the statue? <laughs> it's an absolute disgrace. I refuse to answer that question. We'll take that as a yes then. Take it whatever you want. I don't understand that politics, coronavirus. Why me? I wear a base cap and uh, I have a bad shave. Hello comrades and you're very welcome to the Football Spin. It's a Football Spin on Monday morning after... Um, a big weekend of international football. There's uh, excitement in the group because Ruben Pinder and Siloid are here. Um, fans of the best team in the world. Is that is that all right, Ruben? Is that is that can go with that? I mean, I don't make the rules, but if Belgium are ranked top and we beat them, that makes us the best team in the world. Yeah. Standing. Long live Gareth Southgate. It's the WWE approach to uh, football sports. If you beat the best, you are the best. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, well, myself and Rob O'Hanrahan will chat a little bit about Ireland, which uh, heartache, of course, in the uh, playoffs against Slovakia, a very dull game against Wales, but probably most of the conversation on that will revolve around many pullouts that have happened for the Irish team in both of the pictures. Two players immediately before the kickoff against Slovakia at Anida. And Aaron Connolly, Connolly, who was going to start that game, but was was a close contact of uh, somebody who had been identified as having COVID, a backroom member of the team. And then yesterday, a slew of pullouts as well. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Morning, Rob. How are you, sir? Morning, lads. How are you? Sure. I'm I'm used to heartache. I'm used to boredom. I've been an Irish fan for my entire life. So uh, this is is just a regular Monday morning for me, really. Well, sit back, put the hooves up, and let's enjoy the next 10, 15 minutes of chat about the best team in the world. Is that fair enough, Rob? You can savour that? Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, before we go there, and uh, some grandstanding from Ruben and Cy, let's talk about Dominic Calvert-Lewin's dad. I think that's as good a place as any. Um, Ruben, do you want to tell us about? Well, we know that he's he's uh, he's been talking about his son in a really lovely message. He has, yes. Um, Dominic Calvert Lewin obviously made his debut for England and scored a great header. Um, and his dad posted the most lovely message I've ever seen on on Facebook about him, and it went viral. Um, you sound yeah, like you're welling up now, Ruben. Well. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to cry. Um, I was extremely Strong hungover. On, I was so hungover on Saturday. I did well up reading it. Um, but you know, you know, real men cry, don't they? So um, yeah, he's just he's talking about how he was rejected. Um, he didn't make the England Victory Shield squad at under sixteen level when he was a child. He got taken home because he was too shy to play. Um, and then he thanked all the Everton managers that gave him a chance. And there's been quite a few of them actually that kind of believed in him when others didn't. I don't know who. Marco Silva was left off that list. Is that a dig at Marco Silva? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I, like, that's, I, my, my initial interest was like, which Everton managers have been, are on the list and which are off? So Marco Silva and Big Sam? No one uh, yeah, oh, Big Sam. Oh. I'm not surprised Big Sam didn't fancy him. Um, 
And then, yeah, it said, you know, Bambi on ice, you said Bambi found his skates and it was just lovely message. What, what a man, what a player Calvert-Lewin is. And um, you can't help but enjoy watching Calvert-Lewin do well because he seems like such a lovely man and he's a brilliant, brilliant footballer. Um, I think like if, if, if Harry Kane wasn't around, there would probably be more hope pinned on Calvert-Lewin because he looks like the complete striker. And he's also just got a beautiful face to go with it. So, yeah, that was... He's a very that, handsome really man, isn't he? Yeah, really mm. is. Which is really important. I think, like, going back to his dad's his dad's post, it wasn't it wasn't just that it was this this lovely, like, outpouring of, like, his love for his son, which which he clearly was. And uh, it was the fact it was punctuated by some absolutely brilliant lines. Like, you just mentioned the Bambi on ice, you said. Bambi found his skates. But the other one, which... I'm definitely using from this moment onwards was he was talking about how he'd had various rejections, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, if you hang around the barbers long enough, eventually you will get a trim. And I just thought that was amazing. <laughs> I'm definitely using that again. Um, but it was, it was really nice. It's, it's just, as you say, Ruben, it's great to see him do so well. He did so well with the under twenties in, in the world cup a few, a few years back now. Yeah, It's and, actually um, mad to think, you know, that in that world cup, he was pushed out to the right wing so that Dom, um, Dominic Solanke could play through the middle. Now, that just shows that if, you, if you're great at a certain age, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go on to become a world beater and players mature at different rates. But like, it's kind of like mad to think now that he was kind of pushed out of position to make way for someone who can't score a goal in the Premier League. Yeah, he's just drifted, hasn't he, Solanke? But um, no, it's great. I mean, I think like, it is telling that the kind of managers he's mentioned at Everton there, but I think that the way Everton are geared up now, it's absolutely perfect for him and to bring out the best qualities in his game. He's the he's the main man at Everton, really, in the striking sense, and it's really nice to see him doing so well. And it's interesting because he mentioned the managers there. Maybe the most important of them all is possibly Big Dunk because it was Duncan Ferguson that after Marcus Silva uh, exited stage left who took that really bold decision to go back to 4-4-2 like Everton had been playing 4-2-3-1 uh, so go 4-4-2 stick Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin up front and just be far more direct not big Sam direct obviously but more muscular creating more chances and from that moment on it just seemed whatever that was it feels like a lifetime ago but it's only Jeez, it's only last December. Yeah. Wow. So much has uh, happened. Yeah, a lot has happened. Um, but Dominic Calvert-Lewin has just flourished since that moment. And really, that was probably the first time as a, a true senior player because I think mean, he was getting chances with Koeman. He got some chances with Silva, but it was kind of, he was at that point, every young striker, every young player will get to, where it's like, okay, we have a lot of faith in you, but you do have to start producing now. And for him, obviously, the last six weeks have been dreamland, really. And scoring on your England debut, it doesn't, doesn't really get much better than that. Scoring for your national team on your debut is, is the pinnacle, really, I suppose. So um, it's a very nice story. But well, I'm I right in saying that there was a little bit of a pushback last night about the way he was been, the, the formation and the strategy that, the tactics that Southgate was using against Belgium. I know the, the, the result was the right one for England. But I, did I see something from even talk sports saying, oh, we could really do with Harry Kane right about now? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the formation was exactly the same as the, um, as the previous game. Who did we play when Calvert-Lewin scored? Wales. Wales, of course, yeah. So it was exactly the same as the Wales game. It was a 3-4-3, but the personnel just made it naturally a bit more conservative. 
So against Wales, we had like Saka, who is more of a winger and he's left-footed playing at left wing back. Whereas against Belgium, we had Trippier, who's a right-footed right back. So um, like Rice came in for um, for Phillips and Henderson came in for Winks. So it was like, it's just all, it was all a little bit more conservative, just with kind of more established players. Um, but I thought Rice and Walker actually did really well. I thought uh, Walker was really good yesterday. Yeah, yeah it, like that that right sided centre back of a back three, as he played in the World Cup, suits him so well. Um, so there was a bit of pushback because, but every England lineup gets gets outraged. Like I've never seen an England lineup announced without my timeline suddenly going into meltdown about how shit we are and. Like we weren't great in the in the first half, but we we're much better in the second half. Um, I think the biggest difference was just that Grealish didn't start. So against Wales, Grealish, as he does, he demands the ball. He'll dribble past a few players just to kind of just gain a bit more control and kind of because all the players that were playing against Belgium preferred to kind of get the ball and move it kind of immediately, and none of them really wanted to dribble. I think that's what separates. Grealish from Mason Mount obviously Southgate doesn't see it that way but um, we kind of missed Grealish a lot because he would kind of take responsibility against Wales and make sure that we held on to the ball for a bit longer but we grew into the game we were a bit more positive in the second half and eventually with a bit of luck uh, we got our goals but um, I think like in hindsight it does kind of make sense to play a slightly more experienced slightly more conservative midfield against Belgium and players like Walker, who have that recovery pace. Um, so, I mean, yeah, in the end, it, obviously, we, we can't complain. But yeah, there was there was so much outrage, but there always is. So, I don't really read too much into that. Will it be Will it be Mount or Grealish? Yeah, I mean, Southgate doesn't. Well, it depends what formation we play, doesn't it? Because I think we should play four three three and play Grealish as the most attacking midfielder, sort of left sided number eight with like Phillips and Henderson or whoever behind him. I think that would work perfectly. You can keep your normal front three with Sancho or Sterling or Rashford on the wings, Kane up front, bish, bash, bosh. But at the moment, he seems to want to go back to the back three system, um, probably because our defence is our weakest spot, so he wants to play more of them. Um, and that kind of leaves one less space for Grealish or Mount because you're not going to play him in a midfield two. So in the front three, he loves Mason Mount. And like Mount is a good player. I think he's more of a... I think he's better kind of off the ball and can play he comes up with big moments like he's a good finisher he presses really intensely etc I think Grealish can influence a game a lot more without needing other players around him to help that sort of thing so it will be one of the two of them because I think Southgate sees them both as like attackers rather than midfielders so he won't want to play both of them at the same time unfortunately and where does Marcus Rashford then fit into this picture? Um, what Marcus Rashford, Rashford M- MBA? MBA? Yeah. That, yeah? Get his name right, yeah. Um, he, uh, well, he's going to have to play as one of the front three. So there's a lot of competition for those for those places now. I feel like eventually we'll probably go back to four three three, but um, at the moment when there's like you know a few games to play and not that much time, and we've got and you know all the club managers want their players rested, it's not the end of the world that we have to. Well, that we have the opportunity to start players like Calvert Lewin and Grealish and Mount and see what they can do in that system. But yeah, Rashford would play in one of those slightly wider forward positions. But um, the competition is a good thing, I think, in that sense. So, from your point of view, um, 
Rashford in that system, like, was there anything for United fans to take from that and, and see how he plays for England and even the role that he has there? Um, I don't think you can read too much into it, to be honest. I think that there wasn't a great difference in terms of the positions he was picking the ball up yesterday for England to the ones that he's he's, he's played for his club. I think uh, he has played wide left the last year or so under, under, um, under Solskjaer and Martial's tended to be the one who's gone through the middle. But I think the good thing about Rashford is that he's the front three United played the last year or so has been quite fluid and he's perfectly capable of going through the middle. He can play on the right if he needs to. Um, and there's that fluidity whereby you know he doesn't necessarily have to be tied to the left wing. And I think that England having full-backs who get forward as well kind of like gives him the responsibility. Uh, well, it kind of cuts that responsibility and that, that need for him to stay rigidly to the left wing like he has done uh, in probably some of the early parts of his career. So I, I don't think you can read too much into it yesterday, but I think that Rashford is quite adaptable as a forward and quite versatile. So I don't think it'd be too much of an issue either way. Oh, England um, are top of their Nations League group, flying at the moment, which has huge implications for, well, who knows what, um, because the Nations League, and we will come back to the Nations League, proving to be a very confusing format, um, has replaced friendlies, which a lot of people seem to think is a good thing. But replacing friendlies, but just adding loads of confusion in has definitely, I'm not sure about that, a really interesting situation. You probably didn't see it, or maybe you, you did, uh, Ruben and Zai was. Northern Ireland, who beat Bosnia in the nations or in the playoff on Friday, uh, actually finished bottom of their Nations League group, zero points from four games. And top of that group was Bosnia with 10 points. So poor Bosnia, who topped their group, um, then had to go into a playoff off the back of that group with the team that finished bottom and were beaten on penalties. So however bad Ireland feel, and we do feel very bad, um, I think Bosnia would would legitimately feel a little bit worse. Well, let's talk about Ireland. Uh, Rob O'Hanran is there as well. Rob, um, it was a lot to take in. Like this was, we've had two Nations League games before this under Stephen Kenny. Friday night, we've already spoken about, or we've we've, we've already gone over the details. Thursday, I should say, um, about the the heartache of the Slovakia penalty shootout defeat. But yesterday again, a lot of um, drama. Really, none of it on the field. Well, let's just say that Nimrod Wales, which were both the teams, uh, really seemed like they were wished they were doing something different. Wales thinking of the the chances they had against England, Ireland wishing that they could go back and replay that penalty shootout. Um, but let, let's go over exactly the what happened uh, with relation to the pullouts of the players from the Irish team. Yeah, I mean, two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, an Ireland versus Wales glorified friendly. I like to be honest, who wanted to be there? And I don't think it seemed pretty clear that both teams weren't, but there were huge absences on the Irish side. So we got notification that there were a number of late pullouts. John Egan, Callum Robinson, Callum O'Dell, and Alan Brown were all confirmed contacts of a, of a player who tested positive on the way back from Bratislava effectively um, and that's raised a number of different questions after the late pull out of Aaron Connolly and Adam Eda on, uh, on uh, Thursday evening as well um, so the problem issue, the, the issue is basically is that in Ireland this two metre rule which you've heard quite a lot about in Ireland in recent times kind of came back to bite us in the ass on Thursday in that it turned out that um, the two lads had sat on the plane in seats they weren't supposed to have sat in first of all um, but also then they weren't the required two metres. They were 1.7 and 1.9 metres away. 
um, and as we spoke down with the close contacts and couldn't play. It then transpired that this non-essential football and member of staff who had a positive case, it was a false positive and they never actually had it. So they didn't even need for the two lads to go from the team the way they were. So these late these late pullouts yesterday were just another chapter in this weird COVID football story that we have now. And it's just something we have to get used to. Um, this is what this is it's going to be the case. Like if we want football to take place, the bubble clearly isn't, uh, um, I suppose, foolproof. This will keep happening. Um, but as a result, yes, like it was just a decimated iron squad. Didn't help then that Kevin Long got injured in the first half. And then James McLean managed to do something which he actually has very rarely done, which is actually managed to get himself sent off. Two yellow cards, um, two for the price of one for James McLean. Um, so it's just, to be perfectly honest, like not to sound too much like Mick McCarthy, but if you had offered Ireland a, a scoreless draw against Wales after the week they've had, they probably would have taken it. But I just felt that yesterday was just... For me, anyway, since the return of football, it's been quite hard to get excited about it. It's been quite hard to enjoy it in a lot of ways. But uh, it was just kind of a bit of an azir in the, in the return of football for me as an Irish fan and as a football fan in general as well. Hold on, though. We've had a lot of nadirs. You can't say, is this another? I don't. I think a nadir is, is you can only have one. You can't have many. Yeah. This is, uh, someone would say, like, you know, football is a game of peaks and troughs. It's just been trough and trough and trough and trough. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly as an Irish man in recent years. I look, if, there was nothing notably dreadful about the game. Well, there was just nothing remarkable about it. I just felt that uh, it just epitomized everything that football has felt that, uh, since it came back, which is that it can be soulless and heartless, particularly without fans. And particularly when you think, like, if you ask anyone outside Ireland, like, what do you know Ireland? Irish football to be, it's all about heart and so and all that kind of crap and pushing hard and put them under pressure. But it's the fans. So, like, if you take the fans out of Irish football, and particularly when it's going through the process of regeneration that Stephen Kenny is trying to put them under at the moment, it just does make for painful watching at times. What you mentioned, well, you mentioned James McLean's yellow card. We had Rudy Kinsella on the show on Friday, <laughs> and uh, he was talking about how he always puts five euros on James McLean to get a yellow card. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he gets pretty good odds. He had like 12 to five, uh, I think it was 11 to four yesterday. So he's well on his way to his first million, just off the back of putting five euros on James McLean to get booked in every Ireland game that he's, uh, he's played in. Did he, uh, did he get booked or was it a straight red? Two yellows. It was- Yellows. Was it yeah. two yellows? Oh, all right, he's all right then. He's laughing. Uh, yeah. So, uh, like, he, the second one was really bad as well. Like, I, I know, I know, it wasn't the contact wasn't horrendous, but like you could see the intention from a mile off and the way he lunged him really high. It was pretty bad. It was a it was a bad tackle to make at any time in the game, but to make when you know you're on a yellow card and when you know you're joining the team, like this, this, this man is known for yellow cards. Like. It just and you know I actually went back to his stats a little bit this morning just from the club and international perspective and it's really interesting in that if you if you tracked uh, if you track his yellow cards from his and opposed to his career he was actually quite a clean player in his first few seasons it just seems that as the years have gone on and maybe passion and everything else that comes into James McLean game became more central to it he just became more liable to a yellow card. It's like, it's genuinely like looking at the COVID graphs across Europe at the moment. If you track his yellow cards in his career, it's a massive spike as the, as the years go on. This is the, like a Dan Brown book. If we like, this is the, these are the foreshadowings that we needed to keep an eye out for. Yeah. McLean's gone. Yeah. McLean's disciplinary record that would have given us a, a hint at what was to come. Um, okay, so let's talk then about the situation for national associations and clubs, because we're in a situation now where 
all these players have been in bubbles. Uh, they're at club level. And it, when the national team comes together, it's no matter how you divide it, it's a new bubble with lots of players from their club bubbles. But also players coming from so many different backgrounds. Like yesterday in the Ireland squad, you have players coming from the Premier League, from the Championship, from League One, and from the uh, from the Irish League as well. So like, there's a lot of different leagues coming together, players. So obviously we know that how this works, the, the contacts increase exponentially when you have various bubbles coming together like this. It does beg the question of how viable international football is when you have those situations. And I think Ireland's situation is probably as as stark as we've seen, where you have two players, now it turns out it's a false positive, but two players on one game having to pull out an hour before kickoff and then five players off the back of one confirmed case, four close contacts and the player himself having to pull out an hour before another game. Like there was a situation there where, and this could very well happen, you could have a case, maybe two, but more close contacts a situation where a, t- a team just doesn't have enough players to field a team. Because this thing, as we saw with Ireland, can happen. You can have players pull out an hour or two before kickoff, and you don't have a situation where you can call up players and have them ready to go. So, like the Nations League, international football, any thoughts on where where, where we go from here? I, I'm just amazed that this isn't a bigger conversation already. I mean, I said this this during the last international break, and we've got one more left this year. I can't quite believe, given the way things are moving now, that international football is such a big priority at this moment in time. I, I kind of understand that, you know, obviously football, money is key, Champions League, Premier League, things like that. Ultimately, they will get played because TV, money, etc. But are, are you really telling me it's that imperative now that Nations League games are finished? Is it really that important? I know there's, there's permutations for like national rankings and stuff like that, but... I just do not understand why football is going so far out of his way to fly players across the continent three times in a week just for the sake of the Nations League when there's a much bigger picture here. Um, and yeah, I just I struggle to see if things keep going at the, the rate they're going at, how we will have another international break run as normal next month. Yeah, I have to I have to agree with Sai there. To be perfectly honest, it, it rankles with me quite a lot. Like I, I absolutely agree that, that sport is is it's so crucial and like the return of the Premier League was brilliant because it just felt like some semblance of normality in this kind of COVID hell we've all been living in for the past six or seven months. But I tell you something, like as an Irish person, it, it actually quite quite annoyed me yesterday in a lot of ways. Like I, I really enjoyed Thursday's game and I wrote a piece better for sports show about like just this idea of being able to feel something that wasn't this like dread that's been hanging over us but to be perfectly honest like you had an Irish team who flew over to Bratislav on Thursday we had two two positive cases right one to end up not which ends up taking out whatever seven players out of the squad that team flies back to Dublin and they play Wales and they fly out to Helsinki to play on Wednesday meanwhile I can't travel 20 kilometers down the road to see my family like I, I'm locked down within my own county I can't travel outside Dublin anyone who's in any of the 26 counties in the Republic of Ireland is exactly the same and worst of all, personally for me, in these, in these nation leagues games, they aren't even free to air. So most people in the country can't actually even enjoy them. So why are they being played in that? Why are we, why are we putting players at risk? Why are we putting uh, backroom staff at risk? Because there is a risk in this virus. But more importantly than that, we are being told that sport has to return or had to return because it was good for the nation and it was good for people and good distraction. How many people could actually watch that game? How many people have a Sky Sports subscription? How many people want to tune in and watch Ireland play Wales at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon in an empty stadium in a pointless game? So it just, it, I have to agree with Sai. I, I do not understand 
why we have international football at the moment full stop, but particularly why are we bothering playing the Nations League? I mean, there's the football side to this as well. Obviously, everything Rob's just said there is pretty in line with what I feel about it, but the season's already running in a shorter time frame as it is, and this this incredible rush to get every single game played, it just makes absolutely zero sense to me on so many levels that this is the priority right now. Yeah, it's I, I find it nuts as well, but like, I, the the games being not being free to air is a good point actually because I, I hadn't thought about that and some of the England games are on Sky now as well which I'm still struggling to get used to you know I miss Clive and Andy Townsend on ITV um, but I mean the reason why they are going ahead is the same reason why the leagues have been brought back isn't it it's it's that the football associations need the money um, but in the in the minds of the fans um, us included it's not nearly as important as the Premier League. And and of course, that's true. But um, the reasoning is the same, but it's just not quite as justified in the mindset of fans because nobody really cares about the results, basically. I mean, I don't know how much national football associations get from these fixtures. I, I really don't know. I, mean, I kind of, I understand it more in the Premier League. I understand that there's that trickle down for like the Championship and League One and League Two clubs that that money is you know, incredibly important for them to survive and carry on functioning. But I really don't see what... I don't know enough, to be honest, about what national football associations get out of these fixtures to, to understand why it's even being seen as important enough. Yeah, same. But, I mean, they they will have... They'll just they'll have broadcast deals with like with Sky and ITV, won't they? And, um, and I guess they'll miss out on that money if they don't put the games on, which is why they're being forced to play. But, like... The the Premier League, at least with all the with all the domestic leagues, they're contained within a country, and they don't involve international travel. Like that is the main difference, obviously, which which makes the international games so much more risky in terms of spreading the virus, as demonstrated by the amount of cases that get um, reported um, and the amount of players that have to miss out and now have to self isolate and will miss games for their clubs. Etc. It's mental, and like I don't see. I mean, in the UK, I don't see things getting much better in terms of COVID over the next sort of six months, which puts the Euros at a massive risk of maybe not happening again. Come to the Euros in a minute. I think if the this was happening to a, um, a bigger footballing nation than Ireland, what had happened over the last four days, and we were talking about players with a bigger profile, with all due respect than, say, Aaron Connolly, Adam Ida, um, and John Egan. Obviously, two of them are Premier League footballers, but maybe not of the highest profile. I think there might be more conversation about it, and the pressure could be coming on from managers that are starting to lose players for, it could be, you know, a couple of weeks. We've had this before with managers who are upset when their players come back from international duty with injuries. And there's lots of managers who have, over the years, behind the scenes, encouraged players to early retire um, or, you know, pick up a, an injury. Uh, we've heard these, like, obviously, you can't do that. You have to release the, the players to their associations. There's an agreement in place there. But I think that probably we, we will hear more about this, and especially if it happens, as I say, to maybe higher-profile clubs. Well, let's just... Uh, higher-profile clubs, yeah. Let's talk a wee bit about then about the Euros, because... We're we're not very far out now from a multi-nation European Championships. This uh, this dream of UEFA that has been long in the offing, and you can see they're very very reluctant to walk away from it because 
I think pragmatically now, and uh, if you are thinking kind of pragmatically, this tournament would already be changed and we wouldn't be looking at a multi-city, multinational tournament. We'd be talking quite seriously about one, one country, one nation, and you'd be looking at probably France or England to host the Euros. You've only got to look as far as what happened with the Champions League at the back end of last season um, in that that essentially would have run very similar to the way the, the Euros is, is hoped to be staged in that lots of cities were, were hosting lots of games. It was condensed into one-off playoff games for quarterfinals and semifinals and played in one city. I, I don't see, as things are at this moment in time and given that there's, there's no obvious signs of any like vaccine or anything like that, I can't see a situation where a similar thing isn't happening. So it doesn't happen any in next summer if things go ahead. In be it London or Paris or or maybe a slightly broader area that that encapsulates you know other stadiums as well. I don't see how there's a situation where we can have the the current model where there's this grand scheme of playing games here, there, and everywhere. No, I, I Paddy. Let's put it this way: you, you talked about Dan Brown earlier. Like, if a criminal supervillain wished to create an event to spread a deadly virus around a continent, it would be Euro 2020. Like it, it, you. It, it, <laughs> It is completely just incompatible with everything we've heard and seen in the last seven or eight months. Like it just can't happen. Like look, look at for example. I know we're not going to be there, right? But Dublin is is penned as a host city. As it stands, there is nowhere in Europe that you can fly to from Ireland and come back and not be expected to quarantine or self isolate for two weeks. It just it, it cannot happen. And, and to be perfectly honest, like the fact that 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 UEFA seem to believe that it will just speaks of an arrogance more than anything else like even if there is a vaccine developed in record time it will not be mass produced and mass distributed across the continent by the time June 2021 rolls around and then what happens then do you prioritize the athletes do you play it the way we've done with these bubbles because i think the point that you made is really really important in that if these were higher profile players and particularly maybe if they were english players if this if what happened in ireland camp had happened in the england camp it would be everywhere and there would be genuine questions about whether it's safe because look most people who get this virus who are premier league footballers or are high caliber athletes they're young and they're fit and they're healthy and for most of them it will be a mild illness but there have been numerous examples of long-term effects of COVID-19 that we've seen in young people who people who've had really, really serious illnesses who've ended up in ICU or like um it was a French rugby club who detected like lesions on players' lungs who, who had had outbreaks of COVID. This isn't like a common cold. It's not a flu. There is genuine long-term ramifications for people who get this virus. And it's shown, what's happened in the Irish camp has shown just how quickly that can rip through uh, a setup. Like, uh, fair enough, it is only two confirmed cases, but it shows how quickly it can spread through, even with all the protocols in place, even with, everyone doing everything that they're supposed to be doing. Because at the end of the day, this comes down to one thing, and it's money. The FAI chief executive was speaking yesterday on Irish radio, and he said that if they were to safely distance players on flights at two metres, which is what the HSE in Ireland recommends, they would need to hire four planes, and that's just not feasible. If it's not feasible to keep players safe in as much as possible, then it's not feasible to play football and it's not feasible to have a multi-nation, multi-city tournament that would see teams of 50 players and, and backroom staff going from city to city across a continent that has faced hundreds of thousands of cases. 
uh, of COVID-19 in, in the last eight months alone, let alone what the winter is going to bring. It, it, it baffles me that we haven't, haven't heard that this, that this tournament has either changed format or been cancelled entirely. Okay, we will uh, we'll leave that part of the conversation. Rob, we're letting you go. Thanks for that. I'm sure it's something we'll return to in the weeks ahead. And um, But uh, for, for now, Rob O'Hanron, take it easy. Thanks a million, buddy. Um, so, returning to Premier League, um, which will be back in action from next weekend. A lot of conversation about Project Big Picture, which is Sam Wallace's scoop over the weekend. Ruben, what is Project Big Picture? Project Big Picture is a way... It's Manchester United and Liverpool coming together to hoard more power at the top of the Premier League among the traditional big six and a few quote-unquote long-term shareholder status clubs, including Everton, West Ham and Southampton. Um, and it's it's a series of proposals that they're working on to effectively hoard more power and I don't use the term lightly, almost bribes the rest of the pyramid into buying into it um, due to the current crisis. You know, they say you should never let a good crisis go to waste. And that's they're they're, they're not wasting this opportunity. They're proposing a sort of a different way of spreading the Premier League revenue among the EFL clubs, which they will probably have to accept because they're in such financial dire straits and in return the Premier League gets smaller to 18 teams um, they they want to bin off the the League Cup and the Community Shield and voting power is the really big one for me it would at the moment you need 14 Premier League teams to vote in favour of something for it to pass but under these new proposals it would only require six um, which is not democracy so um, it's just uh the next step in the Premier League's journey to eating itself um, due to greed, basically. So looking at this, and it's probably something we will return to in greater detail, because this is, like, Sai, essentially, this is the, the big guns showing us their hand. This is, this, is, this is a glimpse into what they see will be the way they want to run the league in the future. And they have all the power, don't they? Yeah, I mean, essentially, if you look at it... Um... In quite a, quite a shallow context, it seems like good, admirable stuff. Like you look at what's happened with Berry in the last year, and the fact that this pandemic is ultimately going to spell a lot of trouble for League One and League Two clubs. We're in a position where they've concocted a plan, and twenty five percent, I think it is, of annual revenue will go towards EFL clubs, which is badly needed at this moment in time. I think there's two hundred and fifty million going up front as well to them, and there's there's, there's some kind of hundred million pound payment going to sustain the FA as well. League One and League Two clubs at this moment in time can't afford to say no to that and they're in a position where they, they have no choice. They, they literally have to take that. Uh, and it sounds like they're doing quite a noble deed for these lower league clubs that are going to struggle to see out the next few months and years. But ultimately, it is, as Rubin hints at there, it's just a shameless power grab from a select few clubs in the Premier League that will help them probably get ultimately quite a bit richer. But also shape the league to the way that best suits them. And um, in the long run, that can only be a bad thing and probably leads towards something like the European Super League, which we've we've heard quite a lot about in the last few years. Yeah. Um, and they will need 14 of the 20 top flight clubs to vote in favour of this. So there's, there's, plenty, there's plenty of more ground to cover before anything like this uh, will come to pass. Um, we will return to Project Big Picture, I'm sure. Um, we'll have a, we'll definitely have a look at it again on the football spin. 
But for now, we are out of time. So I want to say thank you very much to Ruben Pinder, Sai Lloyd and Rob O'Hanrahan. Uh, thanks as well to you for tuning in. Much appreciated. If you haven't already done so, click subscribe and you will never miss a show. And we will see you back for another football spin later in the week as we build up to the Premier League this weekend. Good luck. I think it would lift the spirits of the nation. I don't give a fuck about the nation of Morocco. People's lives are at risk. Oli Gunnar, where would you like the statue? <laughs> it's an absolute disgrace. I refuse to answer that question. We'll take that as a yes then. Take it whatever you want. I don't understand that politics, coronavirus. Why me? I wear a base cap and uh, have a bad shave.